See, this miracle, church, takes the stale and religious and crusty water of Judaism, the law, and from the law emerges something better, something refreshing, something that brings joy and fullness. Well, hey there, welcome to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and today we're going to be in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and the topic today is Jesus is the bridegroom. Maybe you've been to a wedding recently, maybe you've watched the royal wedding, and we're going to learn what a Jewish wedding looked like and how Jesus is the bridegroom. Hope you're blessed. God bless you. Can everyone give me your participation? Awesome. I need you to sing the rest of this line I'm going to put on the, the screen. I'll sing the first part. Here comes the bride. Here comes the bride. <laughs> Most people know that line. <laughs> Not everyone today. Uh, at least in our cultural context, because we have been to weddings. Show of hands, who's been to a wedding here this morning? There's, uh, well, you've been to a wedding, I'm just saying. <laughs> I didn't go to a wedding this morning. There's certainly a husband here who forgot to raise his hand. All right, wife, you need to kind of elbow him. You were at our wedding, honey. All right, so um, there's some faux pas when you go to a wedding. I don't know if you know this, but there are some things you definitely do at a wedding and things you definitely don't do at a wedding, things you should never do, okay? And so uh, for most of us, we're familiar with these. For others uh, who were not at a wedding this morning, maybe not so much. So for the uninitiated, I want to start this morning with the Modern Wedding Guide 101, okay? The Modern Wedding Guide 101. You ready for this? I don't think you are. So in our, in our Western weddings, the bride is supposed to wear a wedding dress. <clears throat> yes, white. Yes, white. Yes. But the bride is also supposed to wear something, uh, something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue, right? Do you know why we do that? We do that because it's a sign of fertility and prosperity. That's why uh, we do that. She's supposed to walk down the center aisle, uh, presumably with a father or father figure. That's what she's supposed to do. The groom is supposed to be at the front looking at her, weeping, smiling, not screaming and running, right? That's what we're supposed to do as grooms. There's supposed to be people on one side of the room that support the bride and one group of people that support the groom on the other side, right? Uh, There's not people in the back crossing their arms, boo, right? They're not supposed to do that. You as a bride and groom are supposed to invite people to the wedding that you like, right? That's a general principle. You like those people as you're sharing your beginning of your life in front of them. That's kind of important. And, and, and really, you're supposed to invite them to the reception afterwards, right? It's kind of a faux pas to get invited to the ceremony. And then everyone's like, oh, hey, Bob, Uncle Bob made it. Well, he's not invited. To, you're supposed to invite those same people, most of them, to uh, the uh, ceremony or the reception afterwards. Now, if you're the bride and groom and it's a lunch hour or dinner hour, you're supposed to feed the people some type of food, right? If you show up at lunch or dinner and there's no food, we've got angry guests, right? That's, that's supposed to happen. Uh, now, whenever you're at a wedding reception and someone begins tapping their fork um, to a glass, you yell it out. What is the bride and groom? What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to kiss, right? Well, I don't happen to have a, a, a fork and a glass, but I do happen to have a water bottle. And some of you are newlyweds here this morning, and some of you are older in your marriage, me included. Jen and I just celebrated this March uh, 18 years of our wedding of, of marriage. It's 
So, yeah, isn't that awesome? That was a half-hearted clap. Uh, you're really clapping for her and her perseverance, right? So you're suffering. 18 years, it's amazing, right? So that needs a big clap. But um, some of you are not married yet, so you're not allowed to participate in this. But I'm going to go ahead and tap this uh, cup. And so if you're married here today, you know what to do. Ready? Here we go. Ding, 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 ding. All right. Blow a kiss if you're a widow or widower, or if I can't reach my life, blow a kiss. Just one kiss, bro. Come on. It's church. So, <laughs> so listen. If you are the father of the groom, you are supposed to host and pay for the rehearsal dinner. If you're the groom, you're supposed to pay for the marriage license for the officiant the honeymoon. If you're the father of the bride, you have to pay for everything else. And so if you have a lot of daughters, we're going to have a prayer uh, time in the back after the service. Uh, listen, if you're a, a friend of the bride or groom or someone with a general conscience, you do not wear white a white dress to the wedding because you're upstaging the bride. Whoops. Someone's been there, done that, right? It, you also don't wear black. This is not a funeral, okay? You're supposed to show your support. Um, you're supposed to, I was reading this week, you're supposed to bring a gift as a friend at least $50 worth. Whoops. Uh, if you have, some of you have friends that have been married, uh, lots of friends got married recently, I feel your pain. Uh, you're not supposed to bring a surprise guest who was not on the guest list, a wedding crasher. You're not supposed to stand at the open bar all night long to get your money's worth, okay? You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to take the bride and groom away from the reception for an hour for some advice time, okay? You're not supposed to do that. Uh, you're definitely supposed to get on the dance floor, especially when the cha-cha slide comes on, because they literally give you instructions on how to dance for those of you like me who are motion challenged, okay? So there's lots of things you're supposed to do, not supposed to do at our modern uh, American weddings. But what we're going to study today is the first miracle, the first sign that Jesus performs, and we're going to see it's done at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And what we're going to see is there is a big faux pas that occurs. Uh, and when this occurs, it actually has the potential of stopping the wedding feast dead in its tracks, not for a few hours, but days early. At Jewish weddings, see, you are supposed to always have sufficient wine to last through the whole party. And in order to save face, we're going to see Mary, the mother of Jesus, go to him with a request to step in and intervene in this most, well, well seemingly unimportant of events. And yet Jesus, he does demonstrate his authority in an even more marvelous way, fantastic way, he demonstrates his care and concern to reveal his glory in the midst of the ordinary. And so today we're looking at Jesus turning water into wine. Now, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are a note taker, uh, on a phone, on a device, on a piece of paper, uh, I want to give us the outline for these 11 verses today. We just read it, but we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. We're going to look at weddings. So we'll see what Jewish weddings were like, a little bit different than ours. In Western culture, I say Western weddings, and it sounds like we have cowboys, but you get what I'm saying. Eastern versus Western weddings. Uh, we're going to look at washing in verses 6 through 8, and we're going to look at wine in verses 9 through 11. So let's look at verse 1 and uh, start by looking at this wedding. It says in verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding. On the third day. So if you're taking note, this happened uh, right after the calling of John, Andrew, uh, Peter, Philip, and who we call Nathaniel Bartholomew. The first five guys who follow Jesus. Last Sunday our sermon was called Five Guys. 
How many of you went to Five Guys this week based on that sermon? All right, a few of you. Uh, and so we learned about them, uh, that that calling happened a few days after John the Baptist um, proclaimed, behold, Ede, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, so this is literally the same week. Uh, we're reading right here um, that this is right out of the gate of Jesus' ministry. And so this wedding takes place in Cana of Galilee. I think we have a map of Cana uh, to show us where it was at. Jesus would have been near Capernaum and Bethsaida at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. So remember, he takes Philip and they head over to Cana. All of his disciples at this point, five of them, follow uh, Jesus to, you'll see it in red, Cana. Now notice, Nazareth is kind of in the same vicinity. That may come into play later. What we do know is that it says the mother of Jesus was there. And we'll see why that's important in a moment. But for now, Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding. And uh, before we go too deep into this, I think there's two important points to note about that. Uh, first, note with me that Jesus was not excluded from a wedding party. Jesus was invited to come, not just to the ceremony, but to the entire thing. Some of us have this weird unbiblical idea that, that maybe Jesus just kind of came out of his chamber on Sunday and kind of floated around and spoke and taught. And then he kind of retired back and, and then he'd come out again and then he'd heal people and then he'd disappear. And whenever he ate, it was bread and, and juice, right? That's the only food that he fasted 100% of the time. And uh, and he never was involved in social gatherings. He's never laughing. He's never eating. He's never smiling. Oh, if he was invited to your house, he'd probably be in the corner praying. Or maybe if there was wine being served, he's crossing his arms in the corner just going, man, I thought I told you guys about this. So some of us have that idea that Jesus was angry and just always against there being, you know, some type of enjoyment. And so you could just picture People, maybe with that mentality, some of us think that the people would have been like, oh, you know, Jesus, there's this wedding coming up. Don't you have a ministry to do? Because there's going to be wine there. So we really don't want to invite you. You know, it's not that you're uninvited. It's just, yeah, you're not invited, right? So a lot of us have that idea. But listen, Jesus was among the people and he was a joy to be with. Jesus isn't here out front picketing. With, with a bullhorn, they didn't invent those yet, but he wasn't, he wasn't out there angry at what was happening. Uh, he wasn't blogging against the wedding party. He was invited and he attended. I think that's important. The second important point here, I think, is that by Jesus attending a wedding and doing his first miracle here, his first sign, I believe this is in a strong way, Jesus giving his affirmation uh, of the institution of marriage. I think it's important that when we talk about marriage, we talk about the civil, legal, and religious aspects. Notice verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding, the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. I think it's important to understand uh, the, the civil, legal, and religious aspects of marriage. Uh, I do include those three because we've kind of redefined marriage today in our culture. Um, here at Shoreline, we teach through all of the scriptures. So I'm not a pastor that just like picks my favorite scriptures and I'm going to get on my hobby horse and kind of argue my apologetic you know, statement. We teach through the Bible, all the scriptures. So we go verse by verse. You happen to find yourself on a Sunday where we mention marriage. So we might as well for a moment talk about uh, marriage. The institution of marriage was something that wasn't dreamed up by man. It was instituted by God. So on the screen, you'll note there's three aspects to it. 
if you're taking note, the civil aspect has to do with our relationship with our, with our partner, with our spouse. Right? There's a commitment to live with another person and to commit our lives to one another. So a husband and wife could be married and the husband could be committing adultery, but he's actually breaking, he's violating his duty of fidelity, that his body belongs to his wife and her body belongs to him. They're breaking that. There's a civil break, right? It's a commitment that's broken. There's a legal aspect to it. In marriage, there's that legal aspect, and that has to do not in relation to your spouse, but to the government, to the law. Uh, because marriage and family are core units to society, every government in history confers certain benefits on those who want to be married. And so we as Christians, we're to be legally married before we enjoy the fruits of marriage. We're to be legally married. Even though we may not agree with where the government is at, uh, we're still uh, to go through the right legal channel. So I can't just be married to someone in my heart. Well, God knows we're married. No, God has allowed us to be married legally. And so that means you have a, a license and you have the state recognize it. Thirdly, there's a religious aspect of marriage. And this has to do not with our spouse, not with the government, but with God. See, marriage uh, contains a religious commitment, a covenant. And when we understand the seriousness with which God approaches covenants, then we understand how important the marital covenant is uh, above all. A relationship between one man, one woman, in mutual submission with distinct yet co-equal roles. So that means, guys, I can't call marriage something God doesn't call it. All right? God does not call marriage a union between just two consenting adults who love one another. Our culture may redefine that, uh, but they've already redefined sin, freedom, truth, and tolerance, so why not marriage? Okay? The scriptures tell us in Genesis 1 and 2, God made everything good, but man was alone. If you know a single guy, you agree with God. It's not good. It was good, but it's not good with a single guy. All right, so we were, we were created, we were given, Adam was given a helpmate from his own body to be joined together with him. And God brought Adam and Eve together. They were naked. They were unashamed. They were male. They were female. God brought them together to display Christ's love for the church and the church's reliance upon and submission to Jesus through the marriage relationship. It's a beautiful thing. And so as Christians, we, we must believe the Bible, meaning we believe marriage is between one man and one woman, husband and wife, a covenant before God until death do us part. Anything outside of that, and no matter how it's redefined, is not God's design. Amen? Someone's afraid to amen that. So Jesus' attendance of this wedding tells us that Jesus, hey, he's pretty fond uh, of marriage. So uh, now notice that it says that they were invited and it's in Cana of Galilee. Uh, this wedding um, would have looked a lot differently than our weddings do today. Way different. Ancient Jewish weddings, as I was studying this week, man, they sounded like a blast. So first you have the betrothal. That's about a year before. And it's a legal contract. I remember Joseph had to divorce Mary. Right? There, that's actually, if, if uh, that's what he was intending to do when she was pregnant. So this is a long-standing contract about a year before. Um, not only that, but you have the moment, kind of the, the, um, the procession. And basically the procession was where the groom and his friends would, would, uh, would go to the bride's house and joyously lead her back to his home. Uh, where they'd have this incredible week that leads up to uh, a feast. And it was an incredible time. Uh, where, where what we do is we run off to the honeymoon and, uh, and the bride and groom are gone. They would actually stay there and every evening for an entire week 
you would have a time of feasting. So it's kind of like the honeymoon, a, a family reunion, uh, a wedding shower, and a bachelor party all in one long week. And the entire town was invited. This was a huge time. In fact, in the first century, the, the wedding was kind of the big event uh, of the time. And so at these evening feasts, wine would flow. And if a wedding ever ran out of wine, uh, this would be unthinkable. And the party would be cut short, not by hours, but by days. And so if you were the bride and groom and you didn't have wine, this would be a grave cultural mistake. In fact, some people believe that you could actually be sued. Get this, because you were actually promising something, but not delivering it. Here's what one commentator said. They said, how is that possible? Because the family putting on the wedding was given the appearance of having sufficient resources for the number of guests they invited, and it's accompanying honor when they clearly didn't. Regardless of whether legal action was taken or not, the family that was unable to keep the wine flowing at the wedding they were hosting would actually be destroying the one thing that mattered the most to them, their family honor in their eyes. Can you imagine? At the very least, this impropriety would mark their marriage for the rest of their lives in the eyes of the community. Oh yeah, there's that cheap couple. They ran out of wine. How awkward, how embarrassing. And so guess what happens at this particular wedding in Cana? Look at verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, we read that and go, oh, bummer. The first century Judean reads that and goes, oh, no. This is the faux pas you never make. They wore black to their wedding. This is what you don't do. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus, Mary, said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Um, if you, I can have your attention. We studied this a few weeks ago on Mother's Day. Uh, but note with me, Jesus calls Mary woman. All right. There's a lot of husbands that read that and go, yeah, I'm going to start calling my wife woman. And there's a lot of teenage boys that go, mom, I'm being biblical. Jesus called his mom woman. So woman, will you get me a snack? No, that is not okay. All right. You're not being Christ-like. Okay. If you're a teen doing that, go play Fortnite and clean your room. Okay. Uh, this is a term of endearment. When, when Jesus says woman, he's actually saying dear woman. Jesus is still expressing honor and kindness, but he's making a distinction here. No longer is she mother to him. She's now woman. In one word, Jesus sets apart the fact that he is now setting his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. And their relationship is going to take on a new tone. Like all of us, Mary needed a savior. Catholics read this verse and see Mary interceding for Jesus to step in and help. But when I read this, I see Jesus rebuking Mary and correcting her. And though she's attempting to coax and persuade him, he says, no, 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 my hour is not yet here. It's not yet come. All throughout the Gospel of John, I want you to circle that phrase, my hour has not yet come. Circle that now. It's the first we'll see of it. We'll see it throughout the Gospel of John. The ultimate hour, the purpose for which Jesus came, it's not here yet. This is the beginning. In some ways, his hour had arrived, but in another, in another sense, his full hour doesn't culminate until John 17, when there he says, Father, the hour has come. It's time for me to be betrayed, to be crucified. That was the hour where Jesus was rejected by his own. He was beaten, he was scourged, he was crucified, he was executed, and then we know he rose again victoriously. And now notice what Mary says to the servants. Right? She doesn't walk away defeated like, 
Okay, well, that was embarrassing. He just totally showed me up. No, what does Mary do? She says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I was wondering as I read this, why is Mary in charge here? This would have been at the groom's home, certainly. Why is Mary calling the shots? As we'll see in a minute, there's a master of the feast. Why is Mary directing this? Well, often the parents of the bride, the mother, the father, they would hire out a master of the, of the feast, and they would kind of be the one directing traffic, whereas this, we'll learn later, this host is kind of dealing with more of the guests. And so they're kind of doing the behind the scenes. If Mary's in charge, it's very possible that Mary is the aunt of the groom or possibly the mother of the groom. Perhaps this is Jesus' younger brother. We don't know. But we notice that her husband, Joseph, is not with her. Chances are he's died. She's now a widow. And whatever her relation is with the bride and groom, Mary's in charge of this party. And so she begins intervening with Jesus to do a favor for her, a divine miracle. But Jesus rebukes her. And I love her response, don't you? Look at her response. Her response is, whatever he says to you, do it. I love that. Can we put that on the screen? Yeah, whatever he says to you, do it. Man, I'm sure that is a word for somebody here today. Uh, whatever he says to you, do it. What a great admonition. Jay Sidlow Baxter's mom wrote that verse in the flyleaf of his Bible on his 16th birthday. It's a great verse for moms to tell their sons, hey, whatever he says to you, uh, do it. What a great life motto for all of us. I pray that that would be the motto in our lives. That would be the motto uh, for our career choices, for our love choices, for our business choices, for our future. Whatever he says, do it. Now, that's weddings. Let's look at washing. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. It says in verse 6, There were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. That's an important phrase, so you might want to circle that or highlight it. And it, it, these six water pots contain 20 or 30 gallons a piece. If you're doing quick math, we're looking at about 180, right? More than, more than five, more than five gallons for sure, for certain. Okay, so Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And then he said, okay, take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Okay, I want you right now with me. I know this is hard. Put yourself in the middle of this wedding party. You're... You're listening to music, the wine's flowing, right in the middle of the fun, suddenly the, there's, a, there's a record scratch. The music stops. The drinks stop pouring. Everyone's awkwardly looking around, right? I'd be tempted to yell, Opa, in the middle of it, right? It's just like, you've been at a restaurant, someone drops a glass, everyone you know, takes a breath and looks around. And so just picture um, Jesus looking over to the front door and pointing to the water pots. Now, what is a water pot? Okay, first, these are not what you would drink out of. Okay, these are actually what you'd wash your hands with. Remember, in the first century, they didn't have city water. They didn't have plumbing. All right, so to wash your hands, you'd find a water pot. Uh, you'd walk in the front door, and there they were uh, to standing several feet tall. You'd go in and kind of cleanse your hands, and you'd prepare the dishes and the hands for eating. Uh, but before you ate, the Jews wanted to make sure everyone's washed their hands. They're prepared. Now, at one point, the Pharisees get mad at Jesus for not doing this. And with his disciples not washing their hands. There's some moms that get mad at your kids ad nauseum. Wash your hands for dinner. The Pharisees get mad at, at Jesus and his disciples for this. Look on the screen. Mark chapter 7 says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. Holding to, can you guys read that next line for me out loud? Say it again. 
All right. Very good. Holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles, whatever kettle is. Okay, did you catch that? Ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition. Okay, it wasn't a Bible thing, it's a tradition thing. God help us when we start putting tradition over the Word of God. Okay, external washing was this mechanism of purity for the Jews. And it, it represented a, a brokenness of heart and a desire to cleanse away sin inside of us. If you want to jot these down, quick verses, verses uh, like Exodus 19, 10 and 11, Exodus 19, Leviticus 13, 15, 17. So Exodus 19 and then Leviticus 13, 15, 17. You probably had your quiet time this week in those verses anyway. Uh, but those verses speak about washing your body when you come in contact with something unclean. But guys, you know this, un you know, like with everything, when cold, self-righteous hearts get a hold of an idea, what do we do? We love to turn it into a dead ritual that goes far beyond what God ever intended. Listen to this on the screen. This is one of the traditions of the elders. Check this out. Just to wash your hands, it says, it was the practice. I'm going to read this uh, as if I'm a college professor, just to give emphasis. It was the practice to draw water, not just the water bottle. The water was poured on both hands, which must be free of anything covering them, such as gravel, mortar, etc. The hands were lifted up so as to make the water run to the wrist, in order to ensure that the whole hand was washed and that the water polluted by the hand did not again run down the fingers. Similarly, each hand was rubbed with the other, the first, provided the hand that rubbed had been washed. Going on to the next one. If the water remained short of the wrist, the hands were not clean. Accordingly, the hands were elevated, the water ran down at the wrist, while at the second washing, the hands were held down so that the water might run up by the finger points and the tips. You get the point? This is insane. The Bible doesn't say that at all. This is their extracurricular, additive, religious exercise that has nothing to do with the Bible. There's nowhere in the Law of Moses about hand washing to this silly extent. The Pharisees, we could call them the self-righteous religious Jews, would pull verses out and add a commentary to it, add their own list, and then they'd skip over the more important verses of depth. But Jesus said, when you do that, you're straining out a gnat and you're swallowing a camel. You take one little verse and you strain it out with additions and rules, but then you swallow a big chunk, chunk of scripture and miss out on the most important things. And Jesus said, when you do that, you're blind guides. And so in Mark 7, when they're upset at Jesus' disciples for not going through this ritual, they miss the work that God ultimately wanted to do in them. I read a long time ago uh, the story of a mom who adopted her, her mother's Thanksgiving um, ritual, Thanksgiving turkey ritual. And her mom would always serve the turkey with the sides shaved off of the turkey when they were children. And some of you know the story. So when they grew up, um, when she grew up, her husband says, hey, let's have Thanksgiving dinner. And she prepares the turkey, shaving the sides of the turkey off. He's like, what are you doing? And she says, that's the way my mom did it. It's, it's the best. And so that's the right way to cook a turkey. And so one day her mother was old, very near death. And so she joined her daughter and family for what was perhaps her last Thanksgiving meal. And at that meal, her daughter was really proud to finally surprise her mom with her own recipe, the shaved sides side of turkey. And so when she went to present it to her, her mom starts laughing and says, why did you shave the sides of the turkey off? 
And her daughter was like, well, but mom, that's what you always did growing up. You always shaved the sides of the turkey off, and, and we loved it. And her mom just laughed, uh, inconsolably laughing away. And finally, she catches her breath, and she says, sweetheart, I did that because... Growing up in the 40s, our ovens were too small to fit a turkey. We had to shave the sides off to fit the ovens. See, often we do things just for tradition's sake without understanding why we do them. And so these water pots, listen to me, they represented that ceremony. I'm going to kind of come in. I'm going to make myself clean. I'm going to make myself um, presentable. Then I can eat the food. And, And Jesus says, hey, take those water pots and fill them up. Let's take what we have and let's fill it to the brim. Now, notice that they do. In verse 8, he says, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And it says they took it. Now, let's see what happens. Here's our third section. Wine, verses 9 through 11. We meet here in verse 9, the master of the feast. And it says, when he had tasted the water that was made wine, did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. John gives us that in parentheses. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now, at this point, the bridegroom's not really involved in the story. He's over here lavishing on his wife, and they're just enjoying their time. And so he kind of walks up to the bridegroom. And then it says that he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, in the New King James, it's inebriated. They're pretty, they're pretty happy. Then the inferior... You've kept the good wine until now. Now, who is this master of the feast? On the screen, one person says, among all the Greeks, or among the Greeks at all formal feasts, there was what was called a symposiarch who was one of the guests and was selected to take charge of the feast. It was his duty to preserve order, to maintain liveliness among the guests, to assign each one his proper place, to decide which proportion of water should be mixed with the wine, how much each of the company was to drink, and the tasting of the wine before it was offered to the guests. So you've got a, all, all of you have had a wedding planner, and they also plan part of the reception. He's, this person is somewhat in that role. So track with me. The host, the master of the feast, is given the water from the water pots by the servants, but at this point now it's wine. Miraculously, did you catch this? Some of you who know wine, without the need of fermentation. You know that's a process, right? That takes a long time. That's not an immediate thing. You take the grapes, you take the juice, you ferment it. A long process. But somewhere along the line, at the molecular level, Jesus transforms H2O in the stone pots, and it becomes not cheap wine. Did you read? Glorious tasting wine. And this master of the feast, he, he's like, we're out of wine. Now we've got some more. And he takes a sip. Uh, and then he, he says, whoa, I am so impressed. i got to tell the bridegroom. Uh, hey, most people put out the good wine at the beginning, but to save face and to save money, then they kind of, they kind of dilute it down and then the really bad wine by the end of the night. Right? So we're not going to waste our money. And so what has Jesus done? He's not only saved the situation, but he's done something. He's flipped it around where he's esteemed the bride and groom in the eyes of the community. See, they would now be known as incredibly hospitable and generous bringing out the more expensive wine toward the end. They weren't seen as cheap, as you would expect. Everyone does that. No, the master of the feast's impression and the reputation this couple would have for the rest of their lives was that they were generous and they were gracious. Now, no matter how you slice this, no matter how many Christians and theologians and pastors throughout church history have tried to change this wine back into water, (laughs) listen, the wine... 
The wine was something very interesting. My research assistant um, and I this week looked at the Greek. So we're like, we want to find the Greek word for wine. So we did this exhaustive study of the word wine. Do you know what wine means? Wine. Yeah, it means wine. We tried to find a different word. It means wine. All right. So some people try to say, well, no, 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 wait. Wine in the first century uh, didn't have any alcohol. Well, I understand your assertion, I get it, but even a half-hearted study of first century Judea reveals the alcohol content in wine was sufficient enough that if you drank enough, you could actually get drunk. Okay, There are plenty of scriptures that deal with drunkenness, so we're not going to excuse this miracle away and say there's no alcoholic content in the wine. Say, the idea in verse 10 is that the people by this point should be pretty happy, right? So it's alcoholic at some level, all right? Um, but listen carefully. Jesus is not promoting drunkenness in this miracle. This miracle is descriptive, not prescriptive. This doesn't mean you must have wine at every wedding or have water and pray that Jesus turns it into wine. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. So we also can't read our biases into this passage. Uh, you know what? We have to guard against this. Sometimes we make a doctrine out of an obscure passage of Scripture. That's what the cults and fringe groups do. No, we have to look at the volume of the book to form a systematic understanding of doctrine. And so I actually had a large amount of extra content for this section of the sermon. And as I added it up, I'm like, all right, we'll be here for two hours. So rather than give you kind of a, an expose of scripture, I found three warnings, one prohibition, and one surprise about wine. And instead of doing that today, I'm going to do them live on Facebook this week, probably on Wednesday afternoon or evening. So be looking for that. I'll uh, do that Wednesday and do a Facebook Live talking about um, alcohol. Three warnings, one prohibition, and one surprise. Okay. For now, you need to know that the Bible condemns drunkenness. And consider this miracle. If Jesus was completely against the consumption of alcohol, then it, when they ran out of wine, he would have stood up and said, That's right. No wine. All right. No. But he turns 180 gallons of water into moderate ABV wine that would have served the entire village. Some estimates 2,700 glasses of wine with the best wine they'd ever enjoyed. Now, Jesus wasn't promoting drunkenness. He was demonstrating something more profound. See, we don't know when the water turns into wine. We don't know is when they scooped it. We don't know if it's when they handed it to the master. We don't know if it's when he sipped it. Uh, I actually believe that the water was turned into wine as the servants were walking uh, toward the master because they knew where it come, came from and they got to partake. Notice verse 11. It says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. If you're taking note, a sign is a miracle that points beyond itself to a major truth about God, made known through Jesus Christ. Um, other sources outside of the Bible say, oh yeah, Jesus performed miracles when he was a little boy. But this verse um, proves that that's not correct. Uh, this verse refutes that and says this was the beginning of his signs and miracles. Now why did Jesus do this? Why is he manifesting his glory in this way? I mean, it kind of seems like a pointless miracle, doesn't it? Uh, he doesn't tell the servants like, hey guys, scoop the water out, bring it over here. And, and then kind of lay hands on the wine, not the water. He doesn't like wave a magic wand and say, now taste the sip of it, right? So that everyone says, oh, at the whole wedding party. Right? It's a miracle just for the servants and just for the disciples to take notice. See, the reason why he does this miracle is, the answer to that is more profound than you can imagine. 
You see, if you're tracking with me, the water pots represent the essence of Judaism. The water pots themselves represent the law, the ceremonies, the traditions, the practices, the beliefs, the rules. And Jesus says, hey, let's fill that up to the brim. Fill it up to the very top. Let's take the best of what that religion, self-righteous legalism has, and let's fill it up to the brim. You think about what those water pots were used for. Every person in the house would have washed their hands. It's a crusty, dirty, almost despicable kind of thing. The master of the banquet doesn't recognize this miracle. He just likes the taste of the wine. The bride and the groom, they don't notice the miracle. They're just enjoying their new marriage. Who recognized it? The servants, the disciple. People all around us are, are getting into the watered-down ideas of rules and regulations. And Jesus says, no, I want to give you something better than that. I want to give you the choice wine. Uh, Self-righteous legalism offers water. And Jesus says, I've got something better than that. I like one person. They said that Moses turned water into blood, a, a miracle of vengeance. But Jesus turns water into wine, a miracle of generosity. Uh, all throughout the scriptures, we read about new wine. That Jesus offers something to us that satisfies. Uh, not with the watered-down religions that leave us longing for intimacy with God. See, this miracle in many ways is a parable, a sign to help manifest the glory of Christ. Jesus is going to continue doing this through the Gospel of John. We'll see in chapter 3, it's not a miracle, but he speaks to a man who is a religious Jew. And he says, hey, you need to be born again. Let me teach you what that looks like. In John chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus speaking to a woman who is longing and thirsting for depth for hope and she wasn't sure how to worship and Jesus is going to say the father's seeking you and seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth in John chapter 8 we're going to see Jesus saying I'm the light of the world and then right after that he heals someone who was born blind and then in chapter 11 Jesus is going to reveal I'm the resurrection and the life and he does that right before he heals Lazarus raising him Lazarus raising him from the dead so what is the connection here at this wedding? Why is this a sign? What is this a proof of? How does this display his glory? Well, I believe the connection is found back in John chapter 1. Uh, if you're taking notes, jot this verse down. John chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says, From his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, this miracle, church takes the stale and religious and crusty water of Judaism, the law, and from the law emerges something better, something refreshing, something that brings joy and fullness. Leon Morris says this particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ, the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. We're going to close this morning, and I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to close singing about how God is our vision. And I want to give you three application points this morning. So if you're taking notes, I want you to jot these down. You can go ahead and close your Bibles. I want to give these three points of application. Number one, Jesus, we've already said it, is passionate about marriage. Amen? He's passionate about marriage. Today, if you're unmarried but living together, you need to repent. You need to move out. You need to get counsel. You need to get married if you're professing believers. Okay, If you're engaged to someone... 
you're not yet married. Okay? You have a civil, legal, religious component that is coming uh, to your union. And marriage is wonderful. It's dreamed up by God, uh, not us, and can enhance our lives. And Jesus is pretty crazy about it. In fact, he is the bridegroom. We are the bride of Christ, and he calls us radiant and precious. And one day, isn't it interesting, the church will be hidden away for a time and then brought into the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is pretty passionate about marriage. Second thing that we can learn today and apply is that um, Jesus is better than the law. Amen? He's better than the law. He takes the old water pots and creates something from it, out of it, that's far better. With Jesus, the best is yet to come. And I believe when you walked in, I'm going to wash my hands and make myself clean. I'm going to cleanse myself. And you know what? That's what many of you are still trying to do through the law. I'm just going to make myself clean. I'm going to wash myself up. What that's like is being in the backyard in a pit of mud. And you're trying to wash yourself up. And you're just getting yourself more and more muddy. Paul knew better in Romans 6 and 7. And he said that, hey, Christ doesn't dispense from the old to achieve his purposes. He redeems them. He takes the law and he redeems it. Jesus reaches down and he cleanses us. He makes us new. He's better than the law. So why are you trusting in the law for perfection? As Paul told the Galatians, if righteousness can be attained through the law, Christ died for nothing of no effect. And the third thing that we learned today that we can apply is, listen, Jesus reveals his glory in the otherwise ordinary. Amen? No one notices this miracle except the disciples and the servants who were busy doing a normal job. David Gusick says, Jesus could have filled the pots himself or just as easily created the liquid in the pots. But he knew that the servants shared in the work. Then they also shared in the blessing. The servants did not do the miracle. Their efforts alone were completely insufficient. But because of their obedience to Jesus, they shared in the joy of the miracle. Romans 12, 11 says, Don't ever be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor as you serve the Lord. I know some people say, I want to scale back from ministry because life's busy. And what you see is their fervor begins to wane. No, no Paul says, no, never be lacking in zeal. In fact, keep your spiritual fervor as you're serving the Lord. And serving God is not always the flashy, upfront, on-stage way that Jesus reveals His glory. Often it's behind the scenes, one-on-one, no camera, no feed, no lights, no fanfare, no status updates. But Jesus reveals His glory as we serve Him. You know, there's single moms who are praying for their children, or husbands who are keeping their eyes for their wife only when there's temptation all around them. There's mundane moments that don't get a spotlight, that Jesus is glorified in and through us. And so I want to offer a pastor's challenge this morning for those of us who are serving Jesus. Uh, I believe a lot of us this morning can identify with the servants. We're just doing our thing, and we get to see the glory in the mundane. So my pastor's challenge is to do what Mary offered. Do whatever he tells you. Here's what Spurgeon says, and we'll close with this. He says, now, whenever you try to serve Jesus Christ, do not make a fuss about it, because he never made any fuss in what he did, even when he was working amazing miracles. If you want to do a good thing, go and do it as naturally as ever you can. Be simple-hearted and simple-minded. Be yourself. 
If you have a grand work to do, do it with genuine simplicity. Nothing but simple naturalness has about it a gentle beauty, and such a beauty there is about this miracle of the Savior. May we serve the Lord with simplicity and obedience. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the personal work of Jesus. We look to him this morning as the one who is glorious, who's glorified, and who took what Judaism represented and was able to transform it and make it something better. And we pray that this morning we would not dispel of the law. You didn't come to erase the law, but to fulfill it. And Lord, may we walk in the spirit and thus not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we'd walk in the spirit and have the law written on our hearts. So we would walk in Jesus' name, following him, praying in his name, doing what Jesus would do. We look to him, our hope and our example our vision this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with me as we worship? Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. God bless you, and remember, it's all about Jesus.